Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your presence in this place. We thank you for the great gift of your word that you have blessed us with, that we have it freely in our hands and in our homes. Help us, Lord, not, take, not to take this for granted that we have the, the freedom to have a Bible in this nation. We thank you, Father, when we open it and read it, we learn of you and we see ourselves in it and the necessity that when we see ourselves as sinners, we need a savior. And in your word, Lord, you point us to your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our savior and he is our Lord and God. So thank you, Father, as we come to your word again this morning to hear you speak. May we have ears to hear and hearts to receive and minds to understand what the truth of your word is to us today. We thank you, Lord, that we, we do not need to struggle to understand because you have blessed us with your spirit, the Holy Spirit, who has been sent to reside in the brand new hearts of believers. So Lord, may you help us to hear the voice of your spirit speak as the word is presented today. This Lord, we thank you and praise you for blessing us and honoring us with your presence. And we thank you in Christ's name, amen. Well, yes, I'm back. <laughs> but it's a privilege to be here to be able to share with you uh, from God's word a message that he's been kind of generating in me um, through uh, that Psalm 32, which we read for our call to worship, was a, was a psalm that I spoke from at our men's retreat at Shiloh a, a bit ago. And between that and what we're learning and seeing in Mark's gospel um, in Wednesday night Bible study, uh, has kind of brought me to what this message is all about. The subject today is all about being a true disciple of Jesus Christ. A true disciple of Jesus Christ, because that's who we are if he has caused us to be born anew, and he's given us a new heart and a new understanding of who he is. A true disciple a true follower, a true learner of Jesus Christ. And the first question that I need to ask this morning, am I a disciple? Are you a disciple? Am I a disciple? Remember in Psalm 32, it was written by David, and after he talked about being blessed by God for the pardon of his transgressions, sin, and iniquity, he made a statement about keeping silent about his sin and what that caused him to suffer. He couldn't sleep. He, he tossed and turned every night. 
His bones felt like they were shattering and he was sick with sin. But God did a work as he's done in us if we are a true follower of Jesus. He's done a work in bringing us to the place of acknowledging our sin before him and confessing it and asking for forgiveness. Just saying, I'm, I'm sorry I sinned, no, it takes more than that. You need to realize just being sorry for your sin doesn't necessarily grant you forgiveness. You need to ask, ask for forgiveness because that's what David said, and I ask that you would pardon my sin, and the next statement is, and you forgave me. That's almost instantaneous. When you're convicted of sin and confess it to the God who can forgive you and he asks for forgiveness, he forgives us. 1 John 1, 9 speaks to that. Um, he is faithful and just to all those who uh, acknowledge and confess their sin, being convicted by the Holy Spirit. And he forgives us of all of our sin and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. It's an act of God. When he convicts you of sin to come before his throne of grace and say, yes, Lord, you've convinced me that I have sinned this way, in this, and I need your forgiveness. Please forgive me. And he forgives and cleanses. If that is your testimony, that you have experienced that, then by God's grace you are a disciple and a true follower of Jesus Christ. But it doesn't stop there. That's just the start of following Jesus. Sometimes we get to that stage the very first time and we give a sense that he has caused us to have a brand new heart of flesh in us and we sense the Holy Spirit with us but we sometimes tend to not go any farther than that we're happy just to be forgiven we feel like we've got the ticket to heaven and it doesn't matter what happens now but guess what folks it does matter what happens now Paul dealt with that in Romans when he said, where sin abounds, grace abounds much more. So then the hypothetical question in Romans 6, 1 is, well, if that's the case, if I sin more, I should receive more grace, so I'll go on sinning. Some people do that, to be honest with you. Maybe even you and I have done that. Well, if I sin, I'm going to be forgiven. God's grace is that way. But how did Paul answer that hypothetical question? God forbid that you would have that heart attitude. So it's being coming to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and be born from above by God is just the starting point. So my next question is, how are you doing with our following? How are we doing in our following Jesus Christ? 
How am I doing as a disciple? Exactly what does a disciple look like? What does the disciple do? So, our text this morning, please turn to Luke chapter 9. I'm going to read verses 18 to 26. Luke chapter 9, 18 to 26. This is, and this is in every one of the Gospels. This, this outline of what a true disciple is is in all four Gospels. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it is in the area of, as we see here, of Jesus turning the corner of ministering to multitudes of people in Galilee to realizing that his time is nearing to where he needs to go to Jerusalem and to go, die on Calvary's cross. So he turns from ministering to a multitude of people, feeding them, teaching them, healing them, and he even, he even chases the Pharisees and scribes away from him uh, for the last time, and he turns his attention to the disciples, and it says he begins to teach them. Verse 18, 9, 18. And it came to pass, as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him, and he asked them, saying, Whom say the people that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say that one of the old prophets is risen again. That's what the disciples have been hearing about who the people think this Jesus is. So then Jesus said to them, but whom say you that I am? Peter being the spokesperson and always the first one to answer and say something, sometimes putting his big foot in his mouth, but he always had an answer. And here's his answer to whom do you say that I am? Peter said, you are the Christ, as Matthew writes it, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded in Matthew 16, 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. <clears throat> so if your testimony and faith is saying that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, you didn't come upon that by yourself. You didn't trip over that truth one day when you were walking down the street. That was something God opened your eyes, ears, heart, and mind to know. And that's why we're here. We're thanking God that he did that for us. We could be in a hundred different places this morning at five after 11. We could be. For years in the summertime, I was on a golf course at six o'clock in the morning for years. But God opened my eyes as he's on you. That's why we're here. Continuing on, verse 21, and he straightly charged them and commanded them to tell no man that thing, that testimony, saying, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. You're sitting there amongst the other 
disciples and you hear him say that. And at this point in time, this is the first time that he makes that statement of what is ahead of him, what is actually, uh, who actually is the Messiah. Now, remember Peter said, you are the Messiah of God. But they really didn't have a deep understanding what the Messiah really was about. So Jesus speaks this verse, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes, be slain and be raised the third day. You're sitting there, you're hearing that for the first time. Any of it makes sense to you? Didn't make sense to them either. But that was the truth of who the Messiah is. And he said to them all, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save this, his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose, lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and my words of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and in the holy angels. He's describing here who is a true disciple. He's laying it out. In Mark's gospel, when Jesus made that statement here in verse 22 about what was going to happen to him, the Son of Man, <clears throat> Peter spoke up right away. He couldn't get past the word in Mark's gospel to be killed. He never heard rise the third day. Peter took Jesus aside and he, the Bible says, he rebuked him. Rebuked him. He was trying to correct Jesus' statement. Imagine that. Peter said, that, that's not going to happen. We're not going to allow anybody to touch you or to kill you, was basically what he was saying. Remember what Jesus said to Peter in rebuking him? You don't know what you're saying. Get behind me, Satan. So sometimes we think what a disciple is. Sometimes we don't. It's laid out here perfectly clear what a true disciple of Jesus Christ is. So going back up to verse 18, he was alone with his disciples praying. As I mentioned, he's entering his last few weeks before the cross and his whole intent is on teaching these 12 individuals what they need to hear and learn and understand so that they will be ready for that day when he's arrested, falsely convicted, and crucified. Because when that day arrived, what does the Bible say about these 12 guys? They're gone. They fled away from him. And Peter, predicted by Jesus, actually denied him three times of knowing him. 
Judas, who betrayed him, went out and hung himself. The rest of them were gone. The song said, he died alone. So he's in need of helping them understand what is ahead and who he really is. So then he asked, well, who do the people say that I am? And, and, and in this area of Galilee where he's been all this time, ministering to the crowds of Jews, they're scratching their head and they're starting to think, jeepers, is this John the Baptist raised from the dead? Because at this time, John has lost his head because of Herod. Or maybe it's Elijah being raised from the dead because there's reference in the prophets of Elijah coming. And the first reference of Elijah coming was referencing John the Baptist coming in the power and spirit of Elijah, declaring, prepare the way for the Lord, and seeing Jesus coming to the Jordan River, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, pointing to Jesus. John the Baptist was the last Old Testament prophet because the New Covenant, the New Testament, hadn't started yet. When we celebrate Communion Supper, what is it read about the blood, the blood of the new covenant established in my name? So here before the crucifixion, the old covenant is still in place and John the Baptist is the last prophet of that old covenant. So they're thinking maybe he's John the Baptist raised from the dead. But then to get an understanding for the disciples to understand who they think he is, he asks them, and, Jesus, and Peter answers, you are the son of the living God, the Messiah. He got it right. He actually got it right in his testimony, but did he understand it all? No, he didn't. Do you understand it all? That's a question that comes to my mind. Do I actually understand all that there is concerning Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of the living God? Boy, the more I read the Word of God, the more I realize I don't hardly understand it at all. That's why the gospel is considered by the Bible to be a mystery. A mystery. In, in Mark's gospel, it talked about how, was it Mark's gospel? One of the gospels, after Peter makes that statement, um, Jesus, as he said in, in, in Matthew, blessed are you, Bar Simon Barjona, the flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is hev in heaven, Jesus states that the testimony of Peter here, declaring who Jesus is, that testimony will be the cornerstone on which Jesus is going to build his church. Please hear me. Man has been deceived by the evil one to believe that Jesus was going to build his church on Peter. No. It was on Peter's testimony of who Jesus is. 
Listen to what Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, that's the church, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. God's church, his, his body of believers, you and me, are being put together and, and melded together as, as a family and as a body on the Lord Jesus Christ. And all those who give the same testimony that Peter gave here is part and parcel of that church. Okay? Because there's a host of people out there who believe that they're Christians, and maybe some of them are, but they're believing the wrong about who's on who is the church built upon from that statement. Okay? So, he tells them in verse 21, don't let anybody know what you have just described me to be. Don't let anybody know. Well, that's kind of strange. Doesn't he want a whole lot of people to know that he's the Messiah, the son of the living God who takes away the sin of the world? But it wasn't his time. Remember, often in the Gospels, Jesus makes a statement, my time has not yet come. There was something about Jesus that was uh, for a certain, a certainty that there was a certain time that all of a sudden it would be time. Okay? He made a statement to the disciples. There was a feast. I can't remember which feast it was in Jerusalem, and they were still up in Galilee. In John chapter eight, 7, verse 8, he says to them, Go up to the feast yourselves. I do not go up to this feast because my time has not yet fully come. My time has not yet fully come. Paul writes this for us in Galatians chapter 4, and verse 4. But when the fullness of the time came, I think we even heard that statement in our Sunday school lesson today. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Have, is that not what we've learned? God caused that to happen. We just went through Christmas. Okay. Now we've gone through Easter, the Passion Week and Easter. So that Jesus might redeem those who were under the law, that he might receive the adoption as sons at just the perfect timing. And that time was established, the Bible says, before the foundation of the world. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world had this all mapped out, all planned out. When I consider that often, God seems to get become a little bit greater and more awesome to me. I don't know about you. I think I know God until I contemplate some of what his word tells me about who he is. It's just it's beyond our comprehension. It's a mystery. Verse 22, Jesus says, 
and de declares who he is. Jesus says the Messiah was to suffer, be rejected, be slain, and be raised on the third day. This is the gospel preached by these same disciples. This is the gospel. In verse 22, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected of the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be slain and be raised the third day. That's the gospel. This is how Paul wrote it in the resurrection chapter, 1 Corinthians 15. He writes to the church at Corinth. And we've been learning about the church at Corinth, right, from Pastor Josh. They didn't have it all together either. They had a lot of problems. But Paul reminds them of this. Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand. If you receive the truth of the gospel and you have become born anew by God, you are standing in that testimony. This is who I say Jesus is. by which also you are saved. You not only received it, you stand in it, and you are saved if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. This is why we have to, on a daily basis, consider how am I doing as a disciple, as a true disciple? Am I hiding sin, not confessing it, Peter or David, King David, became weak and sick because he was harboring sin. He says in verse 3, For I deliver to you as of first importance, and this is first and only importance, what I also received from Christ, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. The scribes, Pharisees, and elders of the Jews thought they were doing the Jews a favor, crucifying Christ. It was a preordained plan of God to cause his son to, be, to die at Calvary's cross. Isaiah 53.10, it's a verse that I have a hard time getting past. It's 53 is the suffering servant. It's all about Jesus. Verse 10 says, And it pleased God to bruise his son. How do you digest that? It pleased God to bruise his son. Why? So that we might be saved from the wrath of God. Period. Of first importance. And that he was buried... This is still the gospel. And he was buried, and then he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. It was all written. Jesus has already said it here. He says it two or three more times before Calvary. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to twelve, proving that he was raised from the dead. I could have put on more verses here in 15 because it goes on and says, And he appeared to five hundred at one time. And that was over a period of, um, from, he, from the time he was buried on Good Friday, uh, going through, 
which was one day, going through Saturday, which was two days, and then Sunday, which was the third day, he was raised from the dead on the third day, and he appeared, proving that he was victor over sin, death, and Satan. That's what the empty tomb means for a true disciple. And that's the gospel. It's very simple, straightforward. And he presents it to us, and he gives us a change of heart to receive it as the truth and to believe it. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, For by grace you are saved through faith, and that is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, so that no one is to boast. Like I said earlier, we didn't trip over the gospel someday and all of a sudden, oh yeah, I think I'll take that. Look what a good boy I am that I took that. No. Our boast is in the Lord and all that he's accomplished and done for us. So there now, in verses 23 to 26 in our text this morning, is the conditions of discipleship. The conditions of discipleship. Verse 23, if any man, if any one, it's open. It's an open declaration to all who would come. If any man will come after me. There's an invitation that God gives us. Remember, Jesus said, come to me all who are, what? Weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Learn of me. We need to learn of who Jesus is so we can be a better disciple. If any man will come after me, this is the condition. <clears throat> Let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Now, as forgiven sinners, there's times when we tend to fall back into our unforgiven state, fall back into sin. Maybe you don't have a problem with that, but I confess I do. Um... The old nature still wants to raise its wicked head, digging up past sins and saying, wouldn't it be, wouldn't you find great pleasure in doing this again? We need to deny ourselves that. Give up our, give up our will, our selfish, sinful will of wanting to do what we want to do. You know, what was that song by Mr. Sinatra? I'll do it my way. I listened to Alistair Begg on this passage, and he brought up a song by, I think he said, Billy Joel. Um, you can't tell me what to do. Well, if we're denying ourselves and our desire to do what we want to do and not listen to anybody else, we are not fulfilling the first condition of, of being a true disciple. If you want to come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself, a self-sacrifice. Okay, 
It actually means to die to self. Other passages of scripture speak it that way, to die to self and to take up our cross daily. That's a sign of dying to self. The cross in Jesus' day was a symbol of death. Nobody survived being crucified. That was the purpose of the cross. If you were sentenced to be crucified, that was your death sentence. Take up your cross how often? Once a week, come on a Sunday morning and fulfill that obligation of coming to Sunday and coming to church and spending an hour or so worshiping? Is that all I have to do to be a true disciple? Jesus said, no, take up your cross daily. This is a daily event in our lives. We have to deny ourselves every single day and put God on the throne of our heart and in our lives acknowledge him in everything that we do. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. Every aspect of our life, every thought, word, and deed needs to be run across God's desk for his approval that his will can be accomplished and done. Because if we do that, Proverbs 6 says, and he will direct your path. God will not direct us down the wrong path, believe me. So, take up your cross daily and follow me. How do we know to, how we are to follow Jesus if we don't even know who he is? Peter understood that when he wrote the last verse of his second letter, but he encouraged the, the readers of his second letter, that's you and me, but grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you have thought after all that Peter went through those three years with Jesus and after seeing him as a resurrected Lord, that he would have perfect, complete knowledge of who Jesus is? No. We're talking about the, the God who has created all there is. He's far above us. Isaiah 55, God says, my ways and my thoughts are so much higher than yours, higher than the heavens. So how do we know his ways and his thoughts? The Bible. I hope you're all reading the Bible on a daily basis, not just for a five-minute devotion. Spend some time there. Let God speak into your heart what is necessary. So that's what a true disciple is. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's it. Don't get any more complicated than that. So how are we doing with that? He says in verse 24, but whosoever will save his life shall lose it. That's where I was and that's where you were before God saved us. We were trying to gather around us all the things that the world is promise, promising us. <clears throat> but when you see a rich man who has died and has gathered all together 
a mansion and everything in it and all, all of his monies and all of his value, you never see at a funeral a big tractor trailer full of all of his stuff going to the gravesite. He leaves it all behind. So why do we chase after the things of the world when none of it, none of it satisfies? That's where I was. That's where I was. That's where you were. Whosoever will save his life in this life will lose it. The word there is will. That's a promise of Jesus. You will lose it. But there's a flip side of the coin. Whosoever will lose his life for my sake, surrendering your life for the sake of Jesus, that he will use you to accomplish what he desires and has planned out for your life, which is basically to present the gospel to other people so that they might have the opportunity to hear it, to receive it, and become a disciple. Whoever will lose his life for my sake will save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gains the whole world and loses himself or be cast away or forfeit his soul? Gaining all of this to forfeit and to give away his soul forever and ever. Because our soul and spirit is to live on forever and ever. Well, God's desire is that our soul and spirit will live on with him in glory in heaven. But there's a flip side to it. If we don't become a true disciple, as he's describing it here, and we want to live for ourselves, guess where our eternal destiny is? It's called a place, a pit of hell. And I think Jesus, the commentators say Jesus spoke more of hell than he did of heaven because he knew man would come to the conclusion, well, I don't like what he says about hell, so I'm just not going to believe that there is a hell. You ever run into somebody like that? I don't believe that there is a hell. How could God create a hell? Well, actually, he created a hell for Satan and all his demons. But anybody who would not fulfill what a true disciple and follower of Jesus Christ is, according to the scriptures, has got a seat in the pit of hell. And there is no advantage if a man gains everything that the world offers, he will end up in his deathbed losing it all. This is the truth of gain, the worldly gain of things brings loss, brings loss. But the flip side of it is, if back in verse 23, a true disciple is one who loses everything for Christ's sake on a daily basis, uh, from that loss of, of all of that, pointing ourselves to Christ, there is a great gain of great gain of salvation and being with Christ forever and ever. Verse 26 is a further clarification of this gain brings loss. Whosoever shall be ashamed of me in my words, my gospel, 
ashamed of Jesus because we haven't really comprehended who Jesus is. We haven't really surrendered our life to him in confessing our sins. Therefore, we're a part of Christ, separated from Christ with our sin, and in essence, we're ashamed of him. We set him off at arm's length. We're ashamed of him. I don't want to know him. I don't want to even see him. Whosoever shall be ashamed of me and my gospel, the good news of salvation in Jesus, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed. What a statement. It speaks of Jesus coming to receive his church, the bride, in the last day. And if he runs on to somebody who claims to be one of his disciples, but that disciple has turned away, turned his back on Jesus in shame, Jesus said, I will be ashamed of you also. And that'll happen when Jesus comes in his own glory and in the glory of his Father and the glory of the holy angels. That's when the door is closed, slammed shut. So, considering what a true disciple is, is here in Luke, it's in Matthew, and it's in Mark, and it's in John. And we're seeing, when we read the letters of the New Testament, um, in the book of Acts, we see the disciples going out. Notice the disciples going out and taking the gospel to a lost world. We see the way they behave in their hard attitude toward God. And then the letters of Paul and Peter and James and John in the book of Revelation. So after receiving the truth of one being a true disciple of Jesus, how are we doing? It's a question we should be asking ourselves daily. How am I doing? Because I don't know about you, but there's an awful lot of voices out there that want to get our attention. When this pandemic hit, I stopped listening to the news and the experts because they were doing nothing but causing me to be confused. I said, enough. Enough of the voices of the world. I turned to read more and more of God's word, to hear the truth. These climate change people, they're afraid that when the Arctic ice melts, the, the ocean is going to overflow all the land. What's the Bible say? That happened once, and only once. God said, I'll never do that again. And when you read about the creation of God on all of this that he's made, he's told the ocean that you can come this far and no farther. Go to the ocean. The tide comes in and only comes just so far. So who's control, controlling the water and the climate and everything else? I'm trusting God. He's the sovereign Lord. So many times it is a hard trial and storm to go through being a disciple. But remember what God has promised. I will never leave you nor forsake you. God will always be with you on this road that he's put us on to travel. And then I've got three closing verses to close our time. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. 
Therefore, Paul writes, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. That's exactly what Jesus is described as a disciple. Present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship, and do not be conformed to this world. Stop listening to the world. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do we renew our mind? We read the truth. And allow the Holy Spirit to impart the truth to us. It is this truth that God is using to sanctify us, to be conform us and transform us more, in the person, more like the person of Jesus. Renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. Prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Remember Jesus on the night he was betrayed in the garden, the olive grove where his life was pressed like an olive. He prayed, Father, if you can take this cup of suffering from me, please do, but not my will, but your will be done. Let's follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, therefore, after the hall of faith in 11, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, people have gone before us and proved this, being a disciple, proved it in their lives. It's there for us to read. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. Jesus said, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. That's how we do it. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. This is a race. This is a, a pathway that we are to go down. It's set before us. It's set for us, each one. God has a purpose and a plan to run that race. How are we to do it? Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. How'd you do this morning when you got up? Before you came, did you fix your eyes on Jesus and what's accomplished and done? The music, the words we sung, the words we've read, point us all to Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. He is the one that wrote our faith out and blessed it with us, blessed it to us as a gift. And the perfecter of faith, one who makes it perfect, complete. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross. That's a statement I have a hard time getting by. Who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross and despised the shame of the cross. From before the foundation of the world, he saw the cross. He saw the suffering he was going through, and he says here, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What kind of joy? He was, he was following through and doing completely the will of his father. That brought him great joy. But also, on the, flip, on the other side of that was, he knew that what he was doing on the cross was going to save people from the wrath of God if they would believe. That's why we're here. Despising the shame of that cross and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then Peter writes, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving for you an example. An example for you to follow in his steps. He's trodden this road that we're on with him. 
and he's success, successfully got to the end of it. And what was at the end of it? He returned to glory. And if we will follow in his steps and follow through with what a true disciple is, as it's given to us in Scripture, the end is a glorious end. We will see him face to face. And the Bible says when that happens, we will know him just as he is. We right now are operating by faith, trusting that what we've read here is true about Jesus. That faith is like looking, as it says, looking through a glass darkly. We can see, but then we can't see. Lord, help my unbelief. So, may our great God continue to conform and transform us to be like Jesus in all we do for him in the life that he gives us yet here. Let's pray.